My name is not Lawrence Woodruff, it's Shane Lawrence, and my co-host studies how technology helps educators connect with people in a space. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host uses technology to connect with educators in other spaces. And today, we're going to spend some time studying some research outside of the school hours. So join us as we discuss education research on a Saturday while drinking beer. Today we are drinking Big Wave Golden Ale from Kona Brewing Company. I think I've had one of their others. I think I've had one of the other uh, Big Kona or Kona Brewing beers, but mm-hmm. I have not had the Golden before, and <clears throat> I'm looking forward to an easy drinking experience. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, brewed in sunny Portland, Oregon. <laughs> At least mine is. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. They've got several breweries around the place, but I have I have actually had Kona beer in Kona at the brewery. So uh, I have that claim to fame. That's, uh, I'm sure it's going to be delicious, but I lose a little bit of joy knowing now that it didn't come. From I'm Hawaii. sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. So as you might have noticed, I am joined by a guest host this month. Shane Lawrence teaches junior and senior high drama, computers, and film studies in Alberta, Canada. Shane also hosts his podcast, The Ed Podcast, which is a show about the teaching life in which he talks to different educators every week about what they do in the education world. Welcome, Shane. How you doing? Uh, I'm, uh, the first word that comes to mind is terrified. So let's go with that. <laughs> uh, so this month's topics are actually taken from some of our dialogue over the last couple mm-hmm. of, last couple of months. And so our first segment is going to be focused on, uh, using computers and it's got like an AI flavor to it, although mm-hmm. it's not quite AI in a, in the popular sense. And so we are going to be talking about emergent literacy development and computer assisted instruction. This is by Trotty Hendricks and Bledsoe. Published in the uh, the SRATE, S-R-A-T-E, journal, which is a regional journal published down in uh, the southern United States. We are talking about the efficacy of computer-assisted instruction on students as compared to just receiving good old-fashioned human instruction. I read about an educator a while back who actually was working in really disadvantaged areas of India, like in with the lowest caste with kids. And what he would actually do is take you know, computers that were sort of preloaded with not even instructional software, but just things like access to Wikipedia and some basic math programs, that kind of thing. And he would literally just install them in these villages with no instructions and then leave them and see what the kids would do with them. And he found that it was transforming these kids' education and it was well, giving them education. And he found that kids would immediately start to dig into these systems that were not giving them any instructions. And they would just learn, 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 learn uh, as much as they possibly could. Whenever there are policymakers who are considering rolling out some of these computer-assisted systems, is it's scalable, it's financially viable. If it can do what you're describing, if it can get them going so that the students are doing this learning aut- autonomously and in a mm-hmm. self-directed fashion, then that's something that we can do broadly. And I think that's the biggest appeal for that kind of narrative that they build about. If we can do computer-assisted, we can do it for everyone. Yeah, I feel like maybe we're already kind of hamstringing this, the, the research that we're going to be talking about in a moment, though, because I mean, what we're talking about is, um, I think it's Vygotsky who talks about the zone of proximal, um, struggle. Uh, proximal development. Yeah, yeah. Proximal development, right? And the idea that, you know, there needs to be that level of struggle or else, you know, people aren't going to 
to want to actually try to to succeed to to learn, right? If it's just presented to you. So I mean, I almost wonder, you know, where this kind of computer assisted instruction that would be used for this study. I wonder where that falls in that range as as it relates to the students that were using it. Yeah, and, and they even they even reference Vygotsky in their background material um, in mm -hmm. some of the theoretical framework that they're describing because with the uh, the social component of interaction, so if I'm interacting with other humans, it's driving my uh, my sense making and also my motivation, my internal motivation to continue struggling. And so mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the biggest concerns that I had going like in starting to read this article was if we're putting these young children in a setting where they're not interacting with with other people when they're just directly interacting with a screen, how's that going to impact their ability to do that, that learn on their own cycle that you were describing early on? So, I mean, cutting to the chase, I, I mean, ultimately in the end, right, they, the outcome is that they discover that people are still, the teacher was delivering better gains in literacy learning than the, uh, than the computers were delivering. Yeah, and I had a really so, hard time understanding those results. I actually, I don't know if you if you saw because I made a couple of annotations on the digital file, and mm -hmm. I had a really hard time following their statistical logic, uh, which I got to get into here in a minute. The emergent literacy. So, what is meant by emergent literacy? Just so I, I'm a science teacher, so learning about mm -hmm. like I know some things about like disciplinary literacy, but for mm -hmm. folks who maybe have a less developed background in teaching literacy and reading and ELA. Well, the thing that I got on the paper, I mean, emergent literacy is like the early phases, a kind of proto-literacy, right? The idea that when, when like, well, it's what my kids are going through right now, where, you know, my daughter, who's who's four, and she knows all her letter forms, and she can spell her name, and she, you know, knows some of the, most of the sounds, but ultimately, she can't read, but she will still sit down and read a book. My son, who is two, who cannot read at all. He will sit down and read a book for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, and they'll read books to each other, you know, and summarize what they remember and what's on the page. So I think that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about the emergent literacy. It's mm -hmm. that desire. It's showing readiness to learn the next steps, which is yeah, you know, more... and that, that imitating of those behaviors because they're they're wanting to do what they see happening and what there's demonstrated for them. I love that you've mm -hmm. got child stories because I have one year olds in the house and yeah. Cameron in particular. She loves her books, but she mm -hmm. she usually like there's no way that it's that it's just by chance. She usually holds them upside down. <laughs> it's so funny to look at because she sits down, she's so intent, she gets it open and she just starts turning the pages, but it's uh -huh. upside down every time, and so we always laugh about it because it looks so. Oh, funny. that's awesome. Uh, so what? So in this study, what they did is they took a look at pre-kindergarten students and they random, randomly assigned them to one of three groups. They gave two of the groups one of two uh, computer programs that managed their their literacy development behaviors for 15 minutes a day for what, a few weeks, something like that. And then the hmm. third group was a control group where they just worked with the teacher without any computer interaction. And then they went and they tested their literacy and said, how is everybody's literacy after these treatments for a little while? Basically what they saw is that uh, there were not really any appreciable gains in literacy with the students who were using uh, the two different see a computer system destruction programs, uh, but they were able to see a significantly larger gain for students who were with actual people. I said that the, the statistics really weirded me out because they, they just kind of marched through the numbers without like really giving any context or analysis for most of mm -hmm. it. They're just like, we saw this and then it meant this and then we did that and then we saw this and it meant this. So it kind of felt like they were just listing off their calculations for us. And what was goofy to me was they had these this dramatic outperformance of the control group. So if they're with a person, they're like like mm -hmm. twice as much, like way better. 
mm-hmm. than either of the computer-assisted programs. But then in the very next paragraph, they said that there was a significant advantage for both computer systems when they controlled for pretest scores. And I was like, you can't really have both, can you? Like, you can't have a significant gain in the control group and a significant gain in the computer group. And they never addressed it that I saw. Like, that, that never got resolved. They just said both of those things. Well, the strange thing that, you know, um, that I found when I was reading it is that it felt like the, the people writing this really wanted the CAI to lose. Okay, so it says, The Encova revealed that the Waterford group post-test literacy composite mean of 79.1 was greater than both the Imagine group and the control group. However, the differences between the means were found to be not significant, etc., etc. I mean, they didn't, you know, they, that's the only point in the, the writing where they actually were addressing the statistics in that way. So again, being a bit of a, a stats noob, it just stood out to me as like, are they, are they pushing to, you know, try to de-emphasize that result? Or... Uh, no, you're right. That was a so they had all three possible outcomes at different mm-hmm. spots in the paper, with the control being higher, the computer programs being higher, and then this fail to reject the null, which actually their p value of 0.06 is like a breath away from significance. It's so close yeah. that it kind of felt inappropriate. I I'm, a, I'm with you. It kind of felt inappropriate to just say, eh, no significance, move on. Look at this interesting subgroup, like it. It's so close that I think it merits at least acknowledgement. Look at that. That's that's pretty suggestive. Like, we didn't quite hit significance, but it's really suggestive. Um, mm-hmm. It at least merits acknowledgement. So, uh, so what did you think? So if they, if they, if they were inclined to whatever they, whatever they may have thought, what did, what did you yeah. think about how the computer programs performed just broadly? Well, huh, how did I think they performed? I mean, I can't. Look, can I, I mean, I have my own bias. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the CAI thing. For me, it feels like, you know, it, I, I've used it occasionally, but I just feel like I'm just kind of foisting my children off on this other thing, this sort of cookie machine that just dispenses, you know, little rewards for doing the right thing. Um, in terms of the games, like, I'm again, I'm scrolling through the numbers here, and, and again, this is uh, Stats Baby swimming in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> so... Um, it didn't look to me like there were any really big gains. Well, I, you said something that I want to link to, and then we can go sure. back and we can do some of the stat stuff. But you said a thing yeah. that I think is really that I highlighted because I think it was important in their it was in their introduction. They they addressed that feeling of compute. There are some computer systems in their literature review that mm-hmm. look like they might effectively help students develop literacy, and there are many that that don't that fail to find anything that helps. And they're like more than whatever the details of the computer system might be. They said that teachers of young children who anchor their knowledge about developmentally appropriate practices regarding literacy instruction to classroom management and research support for early literacy instruction have found CAI more effective than those lacking knowledge of a specific role of the teacher. So people who use computer systems, the the expertise and the training of the teacher being able to effectively implement those tools in a developmentally appropriate way is far more important than whatever the tool might be that we use. So if you're talking about like, if this program is just a cookie machine and I can't, it's, it's not fitting into what I want in my classroom and how I mm-hmm. want to develop my students, then it doesn't matter what the program is. Like, it doesn't matter what it is because that's not fitting my goals. It's not addressing how I want to how I want to try and build my classroom. The expertise of the teacher is really the number one thing that we need to consider when we're looking at, at implementation of technology, which I think is lost in the shuffle sometimes of which yeah. computer program and look at this great new learning algorithm and machine and uh, machine learning process. It's gonna it's gonna obsolete teachers, and that's just in direct contradiction 
of what the literature base is saying, which is that the teacher is still the biggest player in developing and deploying these tools with students. Well, I mean, one of the things they mentioned, I think, um, towards the end of the, the study, is that there were a lot of students who just had negative response to the actual situation of being put in front of the computer. And they also made mention of sort of technology issues, too, what I can only assume is meaning that maybe there was the, the program was crashing or who knows what, right? They weren't very specific. So, uh, I mean, the situation surrounding the actual moment where they're interacting with the program was also a factor that didn't really appear in any meaningful way in the study. So you have to wonder, you know, what role did that play? It was it was heartbreaking. I made I just I made a comment on the paper that was just an obscenity because I was so <laughs> I was so distressed by what was written uh, late in there where they said uh, you know some of the students had poor performance due to factors beyond the teacher's control like how the students cried or ignored the teacher whenever they were being assigned to this computer work and I'm like I'm trying to imagine a world where I'd be willing to put a student who's crying because they're being forced to interact with a computer instead of people. I'm trying to yeah. imagine a world where I'm willing to make a preschooler do that. I That broke my heart, like trying to imagine that scene. Yep, yep. That's just a terrible, awful kind of image in my mind now. Thank you yeah, for really like, fleshing that out for me. I appreciate it. Like that's, and that's kind of within our control. Like what we're making our students do is kind of within our control. There were some some results that suggested these computer programs can can um, provide some learning, right? Like that not absolutely, yeah, is still kind of a gain. So um, mm-hmm. we're still we're not software developers. We're a couple no. of classroom teachers. So what what do we do with this information? I think is what I'm searching for. Well, I think one of the things that you said earlier that just sort of sparked my mind is, is just how this sort of stuff is used. If it's just like, hi, kids, welcome to class. Go sit on your computers and do your thing for 40 minutes, and I'll look at the numbers when you're done. Right? That's that's not effective use of that of that material or of that tool. So, like from my drawing from my own experience, you know, I know n equals one in this instance, but you know, I remember that that kind of thing was always sort of used as an extra as a reward you you know your students demonstrate a willingness to engage with literacy instruction and you know they maybe get through everything this is enrichment right this is not base level instruction i mean i would be i'd be terrified to find out if you know if if my daughter is going to school and her main teacher is a computer program like that's because there's there's too many factors. I mean, because a computer can't you know look at the user and say, oh, you're crying. Here, let me hug you. You need to go for a walk. Here's a Kleenex, right? Whatever. So, I mean, until they can have computer assisted design that is, you know, sort of her level of uh, of intelligence, like her the movie, we're not we're not going to have effective CI uh, separated from uh, flesh and blood teachers. So you teach computers. You have some experience working in this space. So do you have a do you have an example or a, a story perhaps of how you have used a piece of software that's uh, I mean at some level of autonomy? Like I don't know if, if students are working through like a piece of coding that gives them feedback mm-hmm. on code. Or, I don't really know what that might look like in your setting. But do you have a story of something? Well, maybe I'll speak to it in a, in a broader sense if that's okay. I think the danger with with tech is that we mistake tech for the goal. Right, we think that that it is the goal, and it's not. So we think that oh, they need to, you know, in, right now I've got my graduates working on Photoshop, and they need to learn Photoshop. No, they don't need to learn Photoshop. They need to learn how to communicate. They need to learn how to collaborate. They can use that as a tool, right? But I can swing a hammer really good. I cannot build a house. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, what I've been learning 
and I've only been, I, I, uh, I taught computers right near the start of my career, had a big gap where I didn't, and I um, just brought, uh, took it up again last year, and, and, you know, changes were really big. So I've been learning a lot of this just in fairly recent history, but um, there's, you know, an explosion of tools. So, I mean, if tech is the goal, that means I've got to teach a lot of stuff. It's content, 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 and that would just, that would just be, you know, <laughs> so painful for everybody, for me, for my students. So... Yeah, my kids are learning Photoshop right now. Yeah, we're doing some nuts and bolts stuff. But in the end, uh, what I want to do is take it out to the school and say, okay, what events are coming up? What do we need promoted? What do you want to communicate to the student body? I've got students who know how to use Photoshop, and they're going to make posters for you, right, so we can communicate with the audience, with, a, with an audience. So um, I, I think that's sort of the big shift that I'm, I'm making. So as far as computer-assisted instruction, yeah, occasionally we do typing and that kind of thing. But even that, that's not very effective. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember my typing instructor. He, kids always ask me, you know, how come you can type so good? Because I, I can, on a good day, I'm about 70, 80 words a minute. You know, and they say, how come you can type so good? And it's like, because Mrs. Jones, grade five. I was terrified of her. <laughs> but she would walk around the room and she would just shout out letters like a drill sergeant. And you better be typing them. Wow. That's, that's funny. Uh, I actually had computer-assisted uh, learning of keyboarding. I didn't even know that about myself until you told that story. But what happened was in, like, third grade, we had this, and it was a popular learning software with, like, little keyboarding games and stuff that you play through and whatever. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was kind of a hyperachiever at that age. Like, I wanted to finish everything like I wanted to have a million points and so mm. and so I finished the program which was unusual at the time most folks only got like most of the way through and then we ran out of time yeah and so in third grade I finished that program and did like the extra credit stuff for a couple of months and then in fourth mm. grade by like coincidence or poor planning or I don't know how it happened but we had the same program assigned just start at the beginning mm -hmm. we're going to do this program and then some of us are like we did this last year and they're like well, we're doing it again Okay, so I did it again <laughs> and again finished it. And so yeah. basically just got this like this this glut of just rote practice. I was the poster child. I don't know why I would type anything, but yeah. I could type stuff really fast because I've been just <laughs> doing it nonstop for forever. Uh, and I didn't know that about myself. So that's interesting. That's an interesting yeah. example. That's, that, that's sort of the one place I, that I think is pretty ubiquitous when it comes to the you know, computer-assisted instruction is typing because it's almost all CI now, like I, I sure don't run around the walk around the room yelling letters at my kids. <laughs> but I think it's a good example of because typing, at least in that case, like you're not learning to write. Like we're not writing poetry. We're not we're not creating prose or using imagery. Like we're literally just executing a, mm -hmm. like a somatic function. Like we're literally just just practicing the most the muscle strokes, and yeah. that's not how almost anything in the world needs to work anymore. Even with voice to text, I wonder how our high school students are, how much are they going to actually type in their life? Like mm -hmm. I, voice to text is going to be sophisticated enough here pretty soon that like, I, I don't even know that they're going to type. So the, yep. the authentic implementation, I think is the perfect description of what this ought to look like for our students is we don't necessarily need a program giving them purpose is we need to give them tools to pursue an authentic purpose. But it sounds like you're designing like, sort of the ideal use case for AI right there, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, that's that's sort of the next step is, is you know, a program that watches what you're doing, is constantly evaluating, and then it can adjust content intelligently. I mean, I know there's, you know, there are programs that sort of have these, you know, branching paths, but it's not the same thing as, you know, like what you're doing which is where you're observing, you're seeing what works and what isn't, and you're able to sort of, you know, adjust the difficulty levels in different categories. When 
AI-assisted learning matures to the point that we can use it in our classrooms, we'll have a new episode. Like, we'll talk about it then. Oh, yeah. But what about right now? Like, there are some appropriate use cases of the currently available software materials in some settings. So, like, what what would that look like where we would want to use what's available right now? Um, when we're talking about computer-assisted instruction, are we talking about, like, do YouTube videos count in this category, or is that something different? Hmm. Ah, man. My knee-jerk reaction was that YouTube doesn't count, and I was starting mm-hmm. to formulate the justification that what I really wanted to think about was computer programs that respond to your usage to right. try and promote more effective future usage. And I don't mm-hmm. use YouTube like at all. Like I just categorically avoid internet videos. But mm-hmm. YouTube does have algorithms that give you like new play suggestions as you watch more videos and as you use it more often. Mm-hmm. And that algorithm, I think, is exactly what we're talking about. So, so actually, it's it's the computer that's doing HAI, right? They're doing human-assisted instruction. We're teaching them. Yeah, fair statement. I mean, it, it it goes like you say, it still goes full circle because it does give you some interesting things. But I mean, I, I live for the day when you know YouTube. I, I seem to get a really weird cross section whenever I finish a video of like children's shows and people filming explosions in slow motion, and usually some sort of celebrity in a bikini. And I have no idea where any of that comes from, except for the kids shows. The rest of it, it's like okay, YouTube. You need to start listening to me a little better because those aren't helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, what's terrifying is I've got to imagine that's like just based on base rates of watching patterns, which just makes me sad. I, yeah, it is. And that's, oh, that's terrifying, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think you have to face facts that you, we have to face facts that that you know that kind of thing. I think you mentioned before it's not this place where it's going to be able to test higher order thinking, like it just can't. Like you're not going to be able to, you're not going to get computer assisted instruction that's going to be able to teach someone how to write a persuasive essay. It's it's too it's way too complex way too complex. I think what we can expect from that kind of these kind this kind of software that currently exists is, you know, sort of drill and kill kind of stuff, really base level kind of things. Some of that stuff is is important. So I, I think as an enrichment tool, uh, it's not unreasonable to say yeah that's it's you know it's got a place for sure. You know you wouldn't want to I don't think you'd want to throw it out. It's certainly not you know not in a, sp- a space where it's it's threatening. You know the effectiveness of, of human beings and the ability to have feedback because even the feedback you're getting on you know that base level stuff is just like well you don't know what a dangling participle is so we'll do some more of those but that's about as complex I think as you could expect it to get yeah, and I think it actually comes back to a phrase that uh, came up in a previous technology episode of ours, that we are the real monkey. The, okay. the approximations, the artificial monkeys, a reference to like a one of the seminal um, behavioral science experiments in like the, I don't know, a while ago, where they were mm-hmm. testing different wireframe monkeys and whether they could um, help ameliorate some of the developmental defects that happen when a baby monkey develops without the mother. Oh, what they found was a baby monkey developing without the mother has attachment problems that shocks nobody. But then if they have this like wireframe monkey, mother monkey, that is what they use to feed the baby, Uh that the baby will have fewer develop like attachment problems because it like snuggles the wireframe monkey. And like it gets some Uh of its attachment reinforcement from just having that wireframe monkey available. But like what we as teachers have to remember is that we are the real monkey and we are better than wireframe monkeys. Like we, we are the best at promoting development of our students currently. (laughs) And so I think, and I think that's borne out in this data also is we are the best 
if you can provide a teacher, they are better than any program. But there are oh. lots of there are plenty of examples where that's not possible, right? In, in India, they've got these scaling issues where they have so many people to serve and mm-hmm. not always enough educators to be able to provide that service. And that's true even like I know some of my uh, Alaskan colleagues have that issue of a lot of remote learning going on because the communities are so diffuse and so um, hard to access that mm-hmm. that's not always an option. So developing better uh, computer assistant instruction is valuable just from an access case because not everybody has access to an educator yet but yeah. we are the real monkey so if there's an educator available they are who you want to use uh, and i think that this data really reinforces that i think that that is still true intent matters So our second piece is turning our attention to learning spaces and how we build buildings and how we create environments where students might be most most effective learners. And Mm -hmm. so we read Lively Social Space, Wellbeing Activity, and Urban Design, Findings from a Low-Cost, Community-Led Public Space Intervention. And that's from Anderson, Ruggeri, Steamers, and Huppert. And this one was, it was published in Environment and Behavior. So this really came across as kind of like an urban planner designer paper. Um, mm-hmm. And so as I was reading this, I was, trying, I was trying to figure out how can we take lessons from what we know about building community spaces to build mm-hmm. places where students can feel community. I really enjoy this. This is, this one is just, <laughs> well, it's, it's been on my mind ever since the get-go. Uh, of my teaching career, and, and I'm not going to say it's, it's not been on the front burner, maybe not even been on the back burner, but it's been somewhere off to the side anyway, uh, in the back of my mind, just um, the idea of environment design. And the reason it stuck in my head is is because of one of the people I taught with when I first started teaching. And this is just this is one of those teachers where you just, you kind of, you know that they're not just good at what they do, but like really really good at what they do like a ma- they call them i guess master teachers is the the term that we like to say so um yeah and i referenced him i think in some of the show notes his name's ken badley and he was at the time talking about basically looking at curriculum and, and unit and lesson design from the perspective of urban design and, and architecture and one of the most important things to him in that sort of central metaphor was the idea of building in green spaces for your curriculum and for your lessons and units, you know, recognizing that there are moments where we need to have rest and we need to have community. And those sorts of things were built into his class in very meaningful ways. I mean, he would actually, he had like sort of a governing body in all of his classes and they could elect to do, you know, whatever they wanted to do to the, you know, to the point where there were some days where students would elect to not have class. And he would, you know, because of what he'd laid out, laid out for them, that's what they did. So, uh, and that's not, of course, not every day. And there was, you know, <laughs> there were days where he was like, oh, I'm ticked off. My kids didn't want to do the class today. And no, 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 no. But, you know, but he was still respecting that, right? So. And that's and that's so highly aligned with what was in this paper as well. Uh, yeah. Is they talked about the five ways of well-being that was kind of this internationally recognized set of criteria for how they evaluate well-being in like public spaces. Those five ways of having well-being are uh, to connect with other people, uh, to be physically active in a space, to take notice of the environment and your surroundings, to keep learning, and to give 
I don't actually know what very much about Gib because that wasn't a focus of this paper, so I don't know very much about that. I one. think yeah, all they say in the paper is Gib. Yeah, so that's uh, it. Uh, yeah. But those are the five, and so I think what uh, what you're referencing from that other material is really in close alignment with building spaces where our students can make connections with one another, and that's not that's not controversial. That comes up a lot in education, but I mm-hmm. think that opportunity to be mindful and aware of the environment is something mm-hmm. that was a centerpiece of this paper and the redesign that they were describing. So what the researchers did is they, they had two parks, one for control, obviously, and then and one that underwent a redesign. And they studied both spaces over the course of two years, I think for about 21 days apiece. And uh, they then compared levels of connection, levels of engagement and physical activity, and levels of taking notice or being aware of one's external environment. And they had pretty specific ways in which they did that. I mean, most of this paper was just deciding or was just outlining how they collected their data. It was quite rigorous, I think. It did a good job of controlling the variables and whatnot. So, and what they found, of course, which was no surprise to me, but it was neat to see the data just the same, is that after the redesign of the, of the one space, uh, the level of engagement with the site was, I think, like three times higher. No, that's not the numbers I want. Here they are. So the number of people who would take notice of the environment, and that just meant things like just looking around at what was actually there, um, in the treatment space, they called it, went up 648%. In the control space, it went down minus 47%, and they're not, they weren't quite sure exactly why that was. But nonetheless, um, I mean, the numbers all went skyrocketed after the changes that were made, including they, they installed uh, some artwork and a little... Uh, little art installation piece. Uh, they added benches to the environment. Um, I think they did some landscaping as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just, it really increased the level of community engagement. And I think ultimately that's, you know, resulting in, in better mental well-being and health. I think that's, they, they don't make that connection with numbers, but I think that's what they're getting at. And the redesign stuff that they were doing was not high dollar stuff, not high, no. high dollar changes. They put in a couple. They they added a little bit of seating, and the artwork they were doing was like local art pieces. It wasn't it mm. wasn't like the big the big ticket items that can maybe sometimes come to mind. And so some very very modest investment. They mm. really they saw these big gains in connection and thoughtfulness in the space, which I think there are things that we want for our students. And so mm. the. One of the things I thought was an important takeaway, I don't know that's necessarily an actionable should, but it was something that needs to be remembered by policymakers, was actually some of the qualitative changes that they saw that paired with these numbers. As they were interviewing some of the community members about what they thought about these redesigns, there was this really strong narrative of some of the undesirable behaviors that had increased since the yeah. changes. Uh, they talk, there's a, like a whole paragraph about winos, about a, a group of pe- uh, people who were drunks, basically, who started hanging mm-hmm. out in this space. And I think that's something that's worth remembering is when we create new spaces and we want them to be used is I think a natural consequence of that is sometimes you're going to see increases in some negative behaviors also. And Mm -hmm. to resist the urge to let those overshadow the tremendous gains that you've got and some of the desirable indicators, we've got this Mm -hmm. like 650% increase in mindfulness and connection to their environment. And so, Mm -hmm. but it can be easy to lose track of all of that because man, we really don't like this undesirable behavior that's going on over here. And so Mm -hmm. we shouldn't have done any of this when the numbers are great 
And a consequence of people using the space is sometimes there's going to be some undesirable behaviors that we need to navigate. So as policymakers, I feel like one of the takeaways from this paper is if we want to increase usage, that can that can mean all kinds of usage increases. And so we're going to need to work on setting new norms and work on redirecting some of the undesirable behaviors because all those, you know, I hope students aren't walking around with wine bottles in a, in a learning space, but <laughs> they, there can certainly be some undesirable behaviors going on, especially yeah. early on in a new space. And so mm-hmm. being a cognizant that establishing new norms and helping redirect the antisocial behaviors so mm-hmm. that we can keep all these desirable outcomes, it should be a part of that process. Yeah, I think, you know, I, when you think of, you know, designing a space that is that is going to help promote in your students, say, mindfulness or engagement, connection, I mean, the word that comes to mind is, is freedom, right? You're opening up your space a little more. I mean, my room is the antithesis of this. It is it is rows of computers that are very hard to get around, and they're all facing the same direction. It's terrible, and I hate it. Um, but it's easy to manage. So if I was to open up the space a little more, then you've got students who are going to be more encouraged to be getting up and moving around and maybe engaging in less productive activities than you would want to have. So then, yeah, like you say, you've got to put that in the balance, though, with is it also contributing to well-being in you know, 80% of my students, 90% of my students, whatever. And maybe it's just a couple of students who are like, haha, I can now, you know, cause mayhem. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's just recognizing that there's going to be some good and some bad with, with every decision, every change that you make. The takeaway in their conclusion, they said there are two parts of this redesign that really had the greatest impact based on their observations. The Mm -hmm. first was the use of public art had a dramatic impact. They accredited a lot of the take notice improvement to be related Mm -hmm. to that public art. And I think that's great news because I think that that can apply to to our school and our educational settings. And you know something about that because that's what you do. I hang the one. Okay, I'm I'll confess. I'm terrible at like updating my wall and whatnot. I, I didn't get that stuff but what what i do is i i always um every year uh i get my eights and nines uh in computers to design movie posters for my grade eight and nine film studies classes so uh, they love doing it they make movie posters they have a competition you know and then the filmmakers in the other classes vote on which one you know gets printed and we take them off to high quality printer printer and you know print them up nice and big all this to say that I do hang those in the walls, and the kids love that because I have a growing collection of one of my walls, which is just all student-made films. And it's pretty cool because, I mean, a lot of students come in there and say, I've never seen that movie before. I'm like, well, that's a student film. And they're always pretty shocked by this that, you know, oh, wait, because the posters they turn out are just, they're they're awesome. And we put a lot of effort into kind of making them look like, quote-unquote, real movie posters. I mean, they are real movie posters, but you know what I mean. So uh, that that's the one thing I do, and it does it does sort of, you know, it's. I offer that primarily even as a counterpoint to the kind of stuff that I hate, which is, you know, the posters that are like little kitten hanging off the branch and hang in there. And uh, There's a piece of research that shows that, uh, that class decorations that are not related to what's going on in the class, so stuff like that, actually reduces students' ability to, to focus on the relevant material in the classroom. So, like, if you teach a math class and you've got uh, posters that are, like, related to mathematical reasoning and concepts, yeah. fine, great. But if you've yep. got a kitten hanging from a tree, that actually reduces the efficacy of your learning environment. Uh, hmm. So there's the research justification for, yeah, that, that shouldn't be a no thing. Kittens. Um, no kittens. But I think student artwork, <laughs> student yeah. artwork can be that thing. Student artwork can create this environment. We're in this together.
Well, this month, we've got a lot to get through because our peer review involves a lot of mail from listeners and authors. First up on our list, we have a list of questions that were sent in to us by some pre-service teachers who listened to last month's episode and wrote up some of their thoughts in response to the discussion. The first question says, During this experience, the only major questions that would come up would be the why of everything. It seemed like I was just wanting a further explanation for everything they were talking about. This student is referring to last month's discussion with Dolores Greenewalt, in which we talked about relationships and the ways that we spend time in our classroom building relationships between our students and ourselves and between the students and each other. I spend my time building relationships with and between students because ultimately that's how we get the deeper, connected, and applied understanding that we're trying to develop with our students through our learning experiences. As has been said on this show before, know your students. And so that means you've got to take the time to understand their background understandings, their priorities, and their interests. And they have to understand some of where you're coming from, your perspective and your background and your interests, because it's only with those deeper relationships that we can make sure that we're providing the tailored, scaffolded, responsive curriculum and experiences that are the best able to grow our students' understanding. So for me, my why is about better promoting student growth. And we know, and the research that we've looked at has supported the notion that you can only do that when you have strong, positive relationships with your students and the students with each other. So for me, my why is ultimately to better promote student growth. So our second question also comes from the student group. This student writes, do open channels of communication between teachers of similar subjects improve classroom atmospheres as drastically as the ones between students? And I find this question really interesting because I don't have the research to justify an answer uh, directly, but my intuition suggests that the answer is yes. And this student writes particular about teachers of similar subjects, but I honestly think that you're gonna see the greatest impact when you have strong relationships between teachers of different subjects. Uh, And this goes back to some of the research that we have discussed about how mixed groups and groups that are comprised of people from different backgrounds arrive at better, more successful solutions to problems than groups of people with similar backgrounds. And so I think that that's going to extend to groups of professionals and their various expertise levels. So I think if you've got teachers with different experiences who have strong relationships, you're going to see more creativity and more innovation coming out of those groups compared to if they don't have those strong relationships. But that's just what I think. I don't have the research to support that answer directly. Uh, So maybe somebody out there has some research to suggest why I'm wrong, or maybe you have some research that can clarify or justify some of this position. So I'm really intrigued by this question. I think the answer is yes, but I'm not really sure yet. So I don't know. Thanks for uh, stretching my thinking a little bit. And now we have one more question from our student group. This student writes, I am still curious about how you can make strong relationships quickly with students you do not have a lot in common with. Is it possible to make quick relationships or is it a process in the classroom? 
And this one, I think there's a lot of people asking this kind of a question. We are so stressed for time and there's so much to get done that if there was a quick answer, I think it would be really valuable. Uh, but I don't think the answer is yes. I think that it takes time. You have to commit to this priority for the long term. And really the best reason for that is because students see through somebody trying to rush through building a relationship. And they're going to respond best when you show them that they're a priority, that those relationships are a priority for you to the exclusion of all the other things that we might be able to spend our time working on. So uh, I think that's just a characteristic of building human relationships is that it does take time. Thank you. Thank you for writing all of the students who are thinking about becoming teachers and are training up to have a classroom of your own one day. Uh, we appreciate you listening and we appreciate you sending along those questions to push us a little further. We also got a couple of responses from some of the authors of the papers we discussed last month. Our first response comes from Dr. Laura Burgess. She wrote, This is great. Thanks for the discussion. It's really nice to hear that the paper is valuable to educators. It would be good to hear more thoughts on how knowledge about peer group contagion is useful for teachers. This is my research focus and I'm always thinking about impact. Well, we're also thinking about application being a couple of classroom teachers ourselves. And I think the thing that's most useful to me is to understand how my behaviors impact those relationships and those social structures that are developing in my classroom. So what are my choices for how the day starts? How do those impact what's going on in my students getting to know each other? What happens if I choose various group structures when we're doing collaborative work? How does that impact the long-term social structure of my classroom? Really what I want to know is how do my instructional and my management choices impact the social networks that are developing and that are remodeling from moment to moment in my classroom? How do those choices shape that process over time so that I can make the most effective choices to serve my priorities in the classroom? And I know that, that may not be as precise of an answer as, as would be ideal, Dr. Burgess, but really I want to see more research related to how my instructional choices and how my time usage choices impact those social dynamics over time. Uh, but thank you for giving us a listen and giving us that feedback. We really appreciate all the research that you're doing to make us better teachers and to help us better serve our students. So thank you once again, Dr. Burgess. We also heard from Dr. Amy Fancourt. Uh, she wrote, Thanks for discussing this paper. I really liked the emphasis on the importance of teacher self-care and maintaining positive teacher-to-student interactions. Remaining mindful of this contagion effect can empower teachers to more effectively manage their classrooms. The other area we are currently exploring with this work is the impact of student contagion on motivational behaviors. This is another aspect of contagion that is important for teachers to understand in order to create optimal conditions for learning within their classes. And I've got to say, Dr. Fancourt, thank you for highlighting the importance of teacher self-care once more. I know this is something that has mattered even recently going into the holidays within my professional network. And so I think it is critical that we give teachers the information to justify their choices to take care of themselves because we got to be in it for the long haul. And if we're coming in here not able to give our students our best and doing damage to ourselves as professionals and as people. I think that that's a problem. So I really appreciate you highlighting the importance of teacher self-care because I agree. I think it's a really important piece of this profession that we need to talk about regularly. I think it's interesting that you linked 
the impact of social contagion to motivation because it's not revolutionary to say to anybody that students are more motivated to work for people with whom they have a strong relationship, but it's an aspect of building classroom culture that I think sometimes gets swept aside, but students are willing to do their very best work for teachers with whom they've built a relationship, and that includes safety to make mistakes because they're working at the edges of their ability levels, but also an understanding and a belief that their hard work is going to be recognized and honored when they invest all their time and energy in what they're doing. We've looked at some research even on this show here in the past that shows that when we even take small, subtle steps that help students feel like they have a connection to the instructor, they are better able to commit themselves to the difficult process of struggling so that they can improve. And we as humans are less willing to commit ourselves to those sorts of intensive, hard work processes if we don't have a relationship with the people for whom we may be doing that work. So it's clearly something that's important, but we also need to better understand how those different interactions impact students' ability to struggle to improvement. And so thank you. Thank you for continuing to work in that area. And I hope maybe we can read another paper from you whenever you publish once again. So thanks again, Dr. Fancourt. This is better with all of you. Uh, how was the beer? The beer is, as always, delightful. Tastes like grapefruit or tastes like whatever oranges. But this is just—it's just it's just, a, just a hint. It's just kind of a nice tanginess to it. And so I—I I like it. It's just nice, light, energetic. Feels good on the tongue. So um, mm. when I when I first cracked it open, I looked at it, and it it looks for all the world like a like an American yellow, like like what you get, you know, just in a draft can. Yeah. But it's not. It's a lot more complex than that. So that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Remember that you can subscribe to get our new episodes every month. And if you like the show, consider recommending us to a colleague. Until next month, discuss research. And listen, plan, and play.